You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. In any type of profession, there are individuals who are not always in the spotlight, but who are well-known and recognized by the insiders of that profession as being the most reliable sources of information and guidance. These are the voices of authority, who the very best in that business or field of study often turn to for guidance and inspiration. They are the pros' pros, the trusted advisors, the Yodas who have the wisdom earned over many years necessary to tell successful people what they are doing wrong and how to fix it. Over the past 40 years, David Lee has earned that reputation and that level of respect in the world of golf. But don't take my word for it. Here are a few quotes from three golfing legends. Lee Trevino once said that David Lee would be the only guy I trust. Chichi Rodriguez claimed that David Lee might be the greatest golf teacher who ever lived. And Jack Nicklaus gave his personal endorsement and full support for David's unique teaching method, which David calls Gravity Golf. Here are just a few highlights of this man's career. He's been named as a top 100 golf instructor 12 times by Golf Magazine. He played on the PGA Tour for four years before an injury forced him to leave. He's worked with more than 30 well-known PGA Tour professionals. In addition to writing a book of his own, he's been featured on ESPN, in Golf Digest, Golf Week, and Golf Magazine. He's the founder of Gravity Golf Schools, which have taken players from beginner to competitive level golf in one year. And if that's not enough, David is a featured speaker in all types of events including three neuroscience conventions. In fact, David's extensive studies in physics and physiology nearly led to his nomination for a Nobel Prize in both of those scientific disciplines. So at this point, I should let David tell his own story. So David, welcome to Golf Yeah. Gordon, thank you very much. Appreciate you having me on today. It's my my pleasure. You're a little bit uh, soft. Maybe if you could move the microphone closer to you, that would be be great. I think it's right uh, right in the wire there. Before we get started, because I got a whole list of questions for you, how uh, you know we're talking during this whole coronavirus uh, tragedy, let's call it, and uh, I'm, I'm curious to know how your organization's coping with it. Well, I'm coping with it right now by being stuck at home, like most other people. Okay. Yeah, I've had to cancel a couple of golf schools, and hopefully, we can get them back on the schedule here pretty soon and get back to work. Yeah. Now, your school's in Florida, correct? No, well, uh, I'm going to be, we've just moved from Boca Raton, Florida to Greenville, and I'm going to be doing schools up here. Oh, okay. I'm going to be uh, handling the short game schools at a facility that um, belongs to a man named Davis Cessna. He He has recently purchased a uh, golf course called the Threes, which he has renamed the Threes at Green Greenville. It was formerly called Crosswinds. It was built by Jay Haas, and Jay had 
hired 18 different architects to build a golf course, and he allowed each one of them to build one hole on this golf course. It's a very, very unique piece of property and a gorgeous R3 course. We're turning it into a 12-hole course, and six of the holes will be turned into a world-class short game practice facility, and we'll be doing short game. I've been doing some some really cool stuff. In the understanding, I've been doing research on the yips for well over 40 years. And about oh, a little over two years ago, I finally discovered exactly what causes and cures the yips. And we can fix them in anybody in very short order. Now, your uh, course or your golf school was originally in Florida, correct? Is that It's been there for, for a number of years. Yeah, I 13 years we were at uh a beautiful facility in Arkansas that I built just outside of Hot Springs. I've been teaching golf school since, oh, full-time since 1978 uh, for a good while in Texas and then uh, moved from there to Florida for a few years, went back and developed my piece of property that I had in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and we were there for 13 years, and I moved. When the crash hit in 2008, we left there and went back to Florida. And I've taught at several different places in Florida, uh, significantly Black Diamond Ranch. Okay. Uh, the owner there was a huge supporter of gravity golf science. I've also taught at uh, World Woods, done my wintertime schools there for many years, and also uh, taught in Orlando for five years at uh, Orange County National, where they um, annually hold the PGA Demo Day. Sure. I, I played there many times. I love their par three course out there. If, yeah, we have teaching on that par three course. Yeah. If we if we can, David, I'd, I'd like to go back a little bit and start. You have a very complex background. You've done a lot of things in your life. Can you give us a, a short version of all the, you know, where it started and how it progressed to where you are now? Well, I, I started started golf when I was four years old. My grandfather got me started in his living room, and he was a clinical pathologist, as was my father. He was a golf fanatic. He got me started out of Ben Hogan's book when it first came out, The Five Fundamentals of Modern Golf. He got me started from that book uh, when it came out in a series in Sports Illustrated before the book even was published as a as a one piece book and he would <laughs> he would get me in his living room and push my knees together and tuck my elbows together and stick handkerchiefs under my arms and stand there and holler at me go now move I go but Paul I can't move from here I'm stuck <laughs> he go moved and I I can remember his voice to this day telling me to to move from that tied down position. So that was my start in golf. And then, of course, as I grew older and started playing golf in high school, Arnold Palmer became my hero. Arnold was about 14 years my senior. And he was, Arnold Palmer was God to me. You know, he just, everything about him radiated the message, I want to be like you. <laughs> so. You know, I started off in golf with a with a kill concept, and when I 
got on the tour and I was a I was a very, very good player in college at the University of Arkansas. I was captain there for two years of that team, lost one match in two years, got slow played by the Texas State champion in a dust storm in Lubbock, wound up losing that match one down in nineteen holes. Left college after two and a half years. I had mistakenly gotten myself into three different colleges trying to become a golf architect. I had written to uh, Robert Trent Jones, and at that time, the only place you could get a degree in golf architecture was at Ohio State University and at the University of Miami. And not being affiliated with either one of those schools, I asked him what I needed to know, and he sent me a list of subjects. and. I started enrolling in those classes and went to see an advisor after two and a half years at the university. And I said, I want to graduate at the end of next year. What do I tell me for my resume? What I need to be certain that I get into my curriculum? And he said, well, what college do you want to graduate from? And I said, well, I'm in arts and sciences. He says, well, you were when you started. He said, "You're now you're in arts and sciences, you're in engineering, and you're in agriculture. He says, you got three more years before you can get a degree in anything. (laughs) Terrific. I think I'll turn pro. (laughs) And that's what I did. I got into into golf, worked in the golf business for a few years, and then uh, went to the PGA Tour in 1970, played out there for, for 70, 71, and 72 found out very quickly when I got out there that there was a whole new level of golf that I had never been exposed to before. I used to sit for hours and watch Jack and Trevino and Tom Weisskopf hit golf balls. My ball, you know, I grew up fighting a hook like most people that hit the ball with their upper body. They hit the, watching them and their ball flight, they hit the ball straight as a bullet. It fell softly like a feather, did not even look as if it wanted to go left, and I and had a completely different sound when they hit it. And I said, well, how in the world do you all get that kind of solidarity and ball flight on your shots? And they just looked at me and go, well, that's just the way we hit it. And I, I thought, well, you so-and-sos are keeping a secret, and you're not telling me how to do it. I honestly thought they were keeping a secret from me. And later, I've, I've never worked with Weisskopf, but I've worked extensively on Jack and Trevino. And the truth is, they had stumbled across the feeling of moving the golf ball with their body mass instead of their muscle. And even though they could do it perfectly, they couldn't verbalize to anybody else what they were doing. Yeah. They, they were unable to transmit it to their own boys. Yet they had a feel for not adding muscle to the downswing when it came down. When Freddie Couples makes a golf swing, he doesn't hit at the ball at all. He just drops his, he just count, when he moves his weight back into his front foot, he just lands slightly against his left leg and deflects his body weight off vertical, his right at the point where his left heel weight goes back onto his left heel, his body mass stops moving toward the target and goes backwards. 
and he goes backwards. This is a part of the swing that I call the counterfall. He goes back. It's not a change in spine angle. The whole body moves back. It's just like a tree that's been cut and is falling. And when he gets right to the point of falling or going down, he just drops his arms in the in the rotation of the body, slings the arms. You look at, at Freddie and Jack and Trevino, their golf swings, according to the rules of golf, are not legal. Seriously. Absolutely. If you, well, if you know any USGA people, they pride themselves on the fact that every word in the rule book means exactly what it says. And the rules very clearly state that in the golf swing, the ball must be fairly struck at. I mean, they end the sentence in a preposition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when those guys move the golf ball, they don't hit it, the golf ball, and they throw the ball. In Freddie's mind, at the top of the backswing, it's as if the ball were on the end of the golf club, and he just leans back and drops his arms, and the turn of the body slings the club through impact. The pickup of the ball in that swing is totally incidental to the movement. There is no attempt whatsoever to make a union between the club and the ball. Now, Fred Couples, my understanding is he's he's self-taught, but Nicholas had Jack Grout. Did did Grout teach him that swing? I don't believe so. I mean, Jack or Grout openly said many times, he said, all I ever said to Jack was nice shot. (laughs) How much he actually (laughs) communicated to Jack about the mechanics of the swing i don't you know i don't really know yeah can, can we talk about your uh, your time on the tour for a few minutes you were on the tour for four years uh i was out there in 70 71 72 best finish i ever had was at hattiesburg i finished third wow. you know it was very difficult time on the tour then because i was out there on my PGA, because I was a PGA member, and I had to qualify on Monday. Got in the first tournament that I ever tried to play for, uh, in, which was the Byron Nelson Classic, and then oh, went to California from there. And or No, that was, that was in the following year. In 1971, I had qualified for the San Diego tournament, and then got there and developed a crick in my neck and had to withdraw and played for the next seven weeks, never shot above 68 and never got in another event huh. for for the whole West Coast swing. It was hard. We would play, we would play back then sometimes 200 guys on Monday playing for four spots. Wow. Were you driving from venue to venue? I mean, how'd you get? Yeah. You could now. Now the schedule is different. Everybody flies, and you make lot, uh, lot bigger moves from one city to the next. It it would be very hard to uh, drive today uh, with with the way everybody, uh, the way the schedule is today. It would be very difficult to drive. You'd be you'd be spending half your life in your car. Yeah. So you injured your hand, and that's that. Is that what took you off the tour? I got off the tour at the end of 72, very frustrated, and decided that I wanted to get out of the golf business. I moved to, I I won my sectional champion, PGA championship, um, 
right when I got off the tour in 1972, made me eligible to play in the PGA Championship in 73. I was went to Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm I'm always been very good at making things. And I became the production manager for a fishing tackle company called the Zorro Bait Company huh. in Nashville. And I was there for a couple of years. And I would go out in the afternoon after work and practice at Richland Country Club. Joe Taggart, the professional there, let me come over and practice at Richland. And I was I had made a tackle box full of spinner baits one day for Mickey Mantle. I was on the tee that afternoon and I was talking with a doctor. We were talking about baseball players. I said, Yeah, baseball players stride into the ball when they when they make a swing. And I demonstrated this. I stepped up, put my feet together, stepped to the right, let my left leg swing over and back. Then I just dropped my arms and turned. It was the first time in my life where my core mass, and this is in 25 years of playing golf, first time in my life where my core mass beat my arms to the golf ball. When I hit that ball, it had a completely different sound. The ball flew straight as a bullet, did not even think about hooking. I thought somebody else on the range had hit the golf ball. <laughs> I stepped back and did it again, and there it was again. I got to where I could hit the ball fantastically with my feet moving. When I went back to a normal swing mode with my feet spread out, I could not get my weight shifted in time, and my shoulders and arms would beat my core mass to the ball every time. Yeah. It, I, and I didn't give it a, much credibility because I thought, well, I've never seen any tour players play with their feet moving. I've got to be on the wrong track. That wouldn't be against the rules, though. You could you could hit the ball like that, right? There's no rule against that. You could. Yeah. But I, you know, I was too shy to be totally different <laughs> right. from everybody else. At, at that time, I'm not anymore, but um, I went for two years. I changed jobs, went with another tackle company. In 1965, I was back living in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is where I'm from, and was in a – I had three partners. We were in a manufacturing company there for making, making uh, soft plastic fishing lures. I got in a marketing dispute with him one afternoon. I hadn't hit a golf ball at that time in two years. Wow. I said, you guys are going to break us with your marketing. I'm going to go hit some golf balls. I don't know what made me do that, but I went out to this little little country driving range outside of town. Worst looking range you've ever seen in your life. I mean, you're shooting at Coca-Cola signs in the field off nothing but crabgrass and 20-year-old golf balls. It was horrible. <laughs> And I, I'll never forget, I was standing there looking at my equipment and not a soul on the range. It was about 110 in the shade that afternoon. I had not thought about hitting golf balls with my feet moving in two years. I started, but something made me start off that way. I thought that not having touched a club in that amount of time, I was going to be starting over from square one. I started off with my feet moving. Within three swings, I was hitting the golf ball like like I had just won a PGA event the day before. Wow. And 
immediately it dawned on me that it wasn't me hitting the golf ball, that the timing of what I was doing was allowing my body to become a vehicle for a much more powerful mechanism. At that time, I had no earthly idea the role that gravity was playing in that move, which is significant. But I knew that I had stumbled across the same exact thing that Jack Nicholas was doing in his golf swing. I could feel in myself what I saw in Jack. And that made me, that caused me to make the decision to get back in golf because I said, I can sense what he's doing. I know I can learn to do this. So I made the decision to get back in golf. I left the tackle company, went to work in um, Houston, Texas. I was working for Charlie Epps, who's uh, Angel Cabrera's coach. He was the pro at Houston Country Club and worked there for a year, developed a lot of the first drills that I used to teach gravity golf. In fact, one of my students was Bill Lane, who was chairman of the Masters after Clifford Roberts passed away. Bill died two years later after he became uh, chairman of Augusta. He died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He was a uh, left-hander. He was the one that talked me into calling my teaching system Gravity Golf because by then I was learning exactly the role that gravity played in the swing. But I went, some of the members sent me back to play on the tour in 77. And before the tour started, I was practicing in Yuma, Arizona, before the Andy Williams tournament. And the ground froze out there every night. And I was hitting one iron shots uh, one morning there and hit one of them kind of heavy. And it stung my hand. And I thought the the hand didn't seem to get better. I thought I had just sprained the hand. Went to San Diego, and my uncle uh, set me up. He was a he was a heart surgeon in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. He set me up with a hand specialist in California or in San Diego. I went in there Friday afternoon about four thirty. He was ready. The doctor was ready to bolt. He took an x-ray of my hand, and he missed this hairline fracture that was in my left wrist. Just started me on anti-inflammatory drugs. And I went for, I played the entire year of 77 with a broken left hand. And the hand never got any better. Subsequently, the lunar navicular bone in my left hand died as a result of not healing it properly. And... I went for about six years where I could barely lift a water glass with my left hand. It ended my playing career just about the time I was learning to become a really fine player. I got into doing swing research full time in 1978. And that's what I've been, you know, I've been doing it ever since. Part of your story is that you discovered a a method of fasting that eventually cured your wrist. Can you talk? Can you talk about that? I find that fascinating. Yeah, my wife had uh, had a book called "The Miracle of Fasting." It's by a guy named Paul Bragg. Who I talked to his daughter when she was eighty years old, and Paul had died. He was he was well over ninety. Had died as a result of complications from a surfing accident from surfing the big waves on the north shore of Oahu when he was 
90 uh, something years old. He had a collision and is the how he how he passed away was a long story, but he had had tuberculosis as a child. His parents evidently had plenty of money. They sent him to a sanitarium in Switzerland and they uh, cured his tuberculosis through a series of control fasts. And he had found it so fascinating that he made it a life study. And I read his book and, it, you know, I'm from a long line of doctors and his book made more sense to me than anything I'd ever read. And I started doing some control fasting and immediately my hand started getting well. Wow. And that year I fasted a total of maybe 80 something days. I did a fast uh, once a week for 24 hours where I would take nothing but distilled water. And then once a quarter, I would do a seven to 10 day cleansing fast. When you fast, you stop eating. Like if you watch an animal in nature, if it's injured, first thing it will do is stop eating until it until it's well again. Huh. Bragg's concept was that we never give our bodies the opportunity to properly heal because it takes so much internal energy to digest our food that it robs us of, of, robs us of what he calls vital force. Wow. When you fast, it's amazing what happens in your body. You just start, you feel like you start turning young again. Yeah. Well, that's an amazing story. T- tell me a little bit about uh, what you went through, you know, when you were studying, when you, when you made the decision to make this gravity golf concept uh, uh, an occupation, a career. The reason it took so long to develop it, it took me that long to to discover the counterfall because I could see that there was a different timing in Jack that his weight weight shift and his swing would go to the right and back to the left by the time he reached the top of the backswing. What I couldn't see was that when he moved back into the left side, he deflected to an off vertical position to get gravity to help you and see gravity helps in the golf swing in a gravity player in three different areas gravity shifts the weight from the rear foot to the front foot gravity starts the arms down and momentum and gravity carry you into the the momentum of the shift and gravity carry you into the counterfall Several years before, you, you had this epiphany uh, where you uh, discovered almost by accident that moving your weight ahead of your hands could make you hit the ball like Jack Nicklaus and, and for Freddie Couples. So talk, walk us through what what sort of research and how long it took to, to actually refine uh, the methodology and, and, the, uh, and, and the actual school that you built around this concept. What I began doing, you know, I told you about the first drill that I ever did with my feet moving. I started developing drills and what the what the different drills do is they magnify the impropriety of using muscle in the downswing so that if you the uh, a proper golf swing is about path control and it's about foot pounds of energy meeting the golf ball. And when I could get my mass through first, then shots were much, much more solid and the ball flight was much straighter. 
all the different drills, what they do. And over the years, I've, I've probably developed at least 130 different drills. Most of them have been discarded to where now we only use a handful of drills and some variations off those, maybe three or four fundamental drills. But the objective with the drill development was try, trying to find drills that people couldn't fake. In other words, if they didn't use proper uh, physics and physiology in the swing, they couldn't make good solid contact with the ball. You know, when you're looking at a, a physiological structure where you have 640 muscle groups, and I don't know how many of them participate in a golf swing, but my guess is that it probably would be maybe in excess of 500 muscle groups that have to function in perfect sequence at every half inch on the golf swing going back or through in order to have an outcome that's anything like Freddie Couples. And the, what I've discovered in all this time is that the human brain is an insidious cheater. I mean, you watch, you go to a driving range, you don't see very many people out there that look like Freddie Couples. Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. Everybody can find some way, regardless of how they apply power, to get from T to green. What I was trying, the question I had been trying to answer uh, from the very beginning is that if there are, and I, you know, having studied uh, the book Square to Square and having known Bill Strasbaugh, I was aware that there was at least five different golf or different ways to power a golf swing. And what I was trying to define and identify was from a physics and physiological standpoint, what is the ideal manner in which to apply power. This is why golf has been confusing to people for 500 years, is that there are a lot of different ways to get the job done. But no one in the game had ever been able, to my satisfaction, to identify the ideal manner in which to swing the golf club. And every one of those five different ways, I mean, if you if you look at Bobby Jones, Ben Hogan, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, and Tiger Woods, you're looking at five totally different ways of powering the swing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Now, you, you've got certainly hundreds, if not thousands, of average golfers, but you also have, have coached professionals on this method. It, is it difficult to get pros to change their swings? The hardest thing about uh, working with pros is getting them to do drills. Why well, go out and follow the tour, and they all have, every one of them has some kind of an entourage around them, and their coaches protect them. They don't want anybody talking to them. And when I work on people, I like to use drills because the drills magnify improprieties in power application. I can work them out of a normal swing mode, but if you walk, if you went up to the top 100 money winners on the tour and you said, see, anybody, let me back up a second, anybody that starts down with a flex concept where they tighten their shoulders and arms coming down, most of that energy is going to the golf ball, but leverage works just like electricity. It'll go two ways through the wires at one time. So if you start the downswing with a 
flex increase in your arms and shoulders, not all of the energy goes to the ball. Some of it goes back into your body simultaneously. Anything that internalizes causes a shift in plane. Third law says for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. Well, the flex is the action, and the reaction comes in the form of a shift in path. So you're either going if you are a right-hander and you tighten your arms and your swing moves slightly over the top, you're either going to hit it to the left unless you compensate through a grip compensation, a ball position compensation, an alignment compensation, all sorts of postural compensations. You can buy a new driver every week thinking this, that the solution is there. And I mean, the equipment industry thrives on that mentality in people. You can put them out of business. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you if you went up to the top 100 money winners on the tour and asked them, how do you compensate for energy that you internalize during the downswing? They'd look at you and go, what in the heck are you talking about? I don't do that. And every one of them do it to some degree. Would you, would you say that guys like Dustin Johnson or Kepka, they're not gravity players. They're power hitters pretty much. Partially gravity players. See, the predominant swing on the tour today is what I call a, a combination swing where they – they use gravity to a degree, and then in the downswing, they add some level of muscle with the shoulders and arms. Tiger Woods falls into that category. He finally, in the last three or four months, he's displayed more things of a pure gravity player than any time that I can remember since he was a kid. He's swinging the golf club very, very, very well right now. When he finally, when he went through the years where he was doing his Navy SEAL training. He um, developed all that upper body strength. He couldn't help but want to use it. And he, you know, he didn't like to have anybody out driving him. Well, I'll tell you, Freddie Couples certainly is the proof of the pudding of your theory in that I think he hits the ball. I don't think his swing has changed in 30 years and hits the ball as well now as he did when he was in his 20s. uh... My son Danny and I went up to Augusta uh, several years ago and we watched Freddie and Tiger play a nine-hole practice round and a blind monkey could have seen that uh, they hit the ball about the same distance off the tee. Anyone could see that Freddie was using half the effort that Tiger was to hit the ball the same distance. You said something, or you quoted saying something I thought was pretty interesting. Maybe you can explain it. You've said that when you see someone lay down a club for alignment, that's a sign that they don't have a clue what they're doing. I think it's funny. I don't know what you mean by it. but Moving from the top of the backswing, you can put your feet in, the, in a stationary stance, go to the top of the backswing, and you can either drop your arms and turn and have the club stay in perfect plane, or if you tighten your arms coming down, it's very, very easy without moving your feet to change your swing plane at least 15 degrees or more without ever having your feet move. So what determines where you're aligned is sequencing. It's not the position your feet are in. It's the ball's relativity to your left axis as you start down, which is your left leg and your left heel. If you start down and you tighten your arms and that and even without moving your feet, if that plane changes, the ball's going on offline, 
unless you make some compensation with your grip or your club face coming down where you open it to keep the ball from going dead left. These are the kind of compensations that people make, and oftentimes the compensations are at a completely subcortical level. The, the player won't even be aware that he's doing it. Just become those compensations become an integral part of the player's technique. I lost your picture there. What happened to yeah, you? Yeah, you're not able to see me, but I am. But I am here. I don't. I don't want to mess with it because I'm afraid we'll get it'll cut out again. You know, you mentioned Ben Hogan's book earlier, which I always found frustrating. Do you have a point of view on on the veracity of that uh, of of Hogan's theory of the swing based on what you discovered about gravity golf? Well, Hogan had an issue in his early. You know, I wouldn't. Although, you know, Hogan was a fabulous player. Don't get me wrong. He is not someone that I would use as a role model for anyone to learn from. He played from a tight elbow position where his elbow was against his body. I mean, you've never seen a major league pitcher pitch with his elbow tied to his side. And Hogan had a great weight shift. He was a park gravity player. And then coming into impact, he because he had a much – it is just as if – he made his elbow the shoulder in his golf swing. So he actually made himself uh, less than five feet tall by playing with an elbow down position. If you look at an arc size comparison between Hogan and Freddie, Freddie's arc would be at least a foot larger in diameter. That represents a big uh, leverage loss in the swing. So playing from a smaller arc coming into impact Hogan would add a racquetball-type lash with his right hand and forearm. That's why he said he wished he had three right arms. You take a Hogan. I knew Hogan. And Hogan had – he used to send me students when I taught at Colonial because I taught a number of Shady Oaks members over there, and he loved the way I got people to move. But I never taught anybody to play with their elbow tied to their side. You take a – a woman, uh, Hogan, Hogan had very strong hands and wrists and forearms. You take a, a woman that has little bitty frail arms and no strength in her shoulders and arms and put her in an elbow down position, she can't break an egg from that position. They need Women need all the arc size that they can get. Now, Hogan was also a victim of the yips, and I, I'd like to talk about your, your theory about that. I, from, what I, from what I understand, I mean, you you call for a very non-traditional putting stance. It's very open, almost facing the hole, which makes me wonder, regardless of how effective it might be, if the average golfer would would be willing to actually do that for fear of being ridiculed by fellow golfers. But talk talk a little bit about your putting theory and, and, and yeah, because it's very interesting. As far as the stance is concerned in putting, alignment is not a determination of whether or not your toes are parallel to the flight line. Alignment in a player that putts with his body mass is a function of the ball's relativity to the leading axis, So, which is your left leg if you're a right-hander. If I turn my, turn my back to the ball where I'm facing exactly the opposite direction from a normal alignment, if the ball's relativity to my left heel 
is the same as it was when I'm looking when I'm looking at the ball. I'm still lined up right at the target. If I continue on around, make an arc swing and come around at the point of impact, the ball's still going to go right at the hole. Alignment is a function just like it is in the full swing of sequencing. And that drives people crazy. <laughs> you can trying to watch that and understand the geometry of it, but when you swing an arc, you watch a rotary place kicker in football. I don't know how old you are, but do you remember when the rotary place kick overtook the straightaway kick? That happened very in a very brief period of time because the physics of it are better. A rotary place kicker kicks the ball with the weight of his entire body that's underneath his head. A straight-on kicker like Lou Groza and Tom Dempsey and those guys kick the ball with the weight of their leg. So they're the little European soccer kickers that were coming in, taking their jobs, were about three-fourths of the size and could kick the ball further and straighter than some of these great big guys. They Rotary kickers kick it with the weight of their entire mass. Well, my understanding of, of your putting theory, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that most people start from a fixed static position, which causes essentially muscles to tense up. So when they start the putting stroke, it, the body causes the club face to go offline. You're suggesting that it's actually a full, it starts almost like a full swing in, in, in an arc so that your, your body is more relaxed and your muscles are not tense and you're able to direct the ball in a more consistent manner. Is that? Well, the thing that causes the yips is something entirely different, which I, I look for the solution to the yips because I, I got them in 1971. I stepped up on a dead flat five foot putt at the Texas Open and came into the ball and flinched on it and knocked the ball 15 feet past the hole. I'd never done that in my life playing golf for 25 years. And I, I looked at that putt. I went, what in the hell caused that? It was just an involuntary flinch right at impact. I had never experienced that feeling in my life. I turned around and tossed my putter to my caddy. I said, that'll be all for me today. The only time in my lifetime I ever walked off the golf course. I began to study it and because I f began to feel that happening in my body. After that, when I would get on certain putts, I would come into the ball and involuntarily flinch. And I mean, if you've seen very many people that have the yips, some of them come into impact and their hands just do an involuntary jerk right at impact. I never bought into the fact that the yips were a neurological problem. And the reason I didn't do that, is, you know, they study the yips at institutions all over the world, at Mayo Clinic, Caltech, Stanford, Columbia University, and there's even an institution in Chicago that's totally devoted to the study of focal dystonia. That's the technical name for the yips. And what they do is hook people up to these electroencephalograms and they wire up their brain and watch what happens to them when they yip a putt. And there's an absolute storm of electrical activity that goes off the brain, goes off in the brain when somebody yips a putt. And they're diagnosing this as a neurological problem. And I've, I've never bought into that. And the reason 
that I haven't is because Jack, Arnold, Trevino, Sam Snead, Gary Player, and Chi-Chi, all six of those guys, I asked them point blank. I said, in your opinion, what percentage of professional players have been plagued by the yips at one time or another during their career? Every one of them told me in excess of 75%, which is a huge number. And I thought, well, there's no way in the world that you can convince me that 75% of the players on the PGA Tour are neurologically damaged. These are healthy individuals. Something else is triggering this involuntary flinch in the hands of impact. I always believed that they were mechanically, that it was a mechanical issue in the stroke. And about, oh, two and a half years ago, I, I looked every place in the body that I could to try to figure out what was triggering the yips. And about two and a half years ago, I found it. And the issue is in the spine. The spine is a very unique series of bones. When you're standing normally in a vertical attitude, the weight of your head and the weight of your shoulders and arms push down on your on your backbone and cause the disc to compress slack and that puts slack in between the core and the hands. You can actually put your fingertips together and hold your hands still in front of you. And you, I can turn my body back and forth independently. See, I'm right now. I'm turning my chest back and back and forth, and my hands are staying put. Slack is a design of human anatomy, which is we've got slack in our joints and in our backbone, which allows us to wiggle and move. In a full swing, when your arms go above your head. You drop your arms, you have time to counterfall, turn your mass, and engage and sling your arms through impact and get the slack out from um, between your core and the extremity that your brain is trying to move. When people get yippy, it's well, if you uh, to give you a comparative analogy, if you were on water skis, do you water ski? No, I, I stay away from. Uh... It's like spitting in the face of death. I, I put that in the same category as skiing. <laughs> <laughs> well, people water ski if they put if they put too much edge on the on their skis and go out beside the boat. If there's too much edge on it, they can easily outrun the boat. When that occurs, the rope will fall in the water. The same basic thing is happening when someone yips a putt. When they take their normal address. They have slack in their backbone, both vertically and rotationally. If you have a very short backswing and you throw it back and you try to come down and touch the ball delicately, see the yips don't occur in people. They Everyone thinks that they happen when you get older. The yips occur when you start trying to touch the ball delicately and you do not have a connection to your core mass. And by stretching your backbone when you take your address, you can get the slack out both vertically and rotationally. See, if I take my, I can see I'm holding my hands still. I'm turning now and my hands aren't moving. 
Now, once I get the slack out of there, now if I turn any further, you'll see my hands move. So when you take your address, if you get the slack out of your backbone, both vertically and rotationally, you throw your arms and putter back, your wrist will cock slightly, you turn through and you'll get an instantaneous core mass connection to your hands and the sensation, anytime your hands flinch coming into impact, it's because your brain does not detect a connect a connection to your core. See, the human brain, everywhere we go, the human brain wants to have us move core first. That's why people have either been designed or evolved, depending on your viewpoint, top-heavy, upright animals. You look into the animal kingdom, animals have half their body length in their legs, and we're all top-heavy. And that's the reason for that. I mean, just look at a hippopotamus or an elephant. All As heavy as they are, all they have to do to move without effort is to allow their center of mass to come out of vertical. Is there a player on the tour who you think best exemplifies uh, the putting stroke you're talking about? Probably the the best one. Crenshaw did it, and the the one that was the most noteworthy that put it on the arc that was really a great player. Now, Tiger, Tiger used to do it when he first started playing, when he made everything. And then probably because of his knee issues in the last few years, you see him standing on both feet at a dress where he used to stand predominantly on his left leg. You can only apply power correctly and completely around one axis. If you stand with your weight equally on both feet and you try to turn through, you start moving like a revolving door. You want to ideally apply power like you're turning around a single axis, like you're standing like you're a single hinge door. The difference between a door and a human being mechanically is that a human being, a, a door has two hinge pins, one at the top and one at the bottom, and that keeps the door in its plane. A human being has no top hinge pin, so your head can float in space even though your feet are solidly on the ground. So you turn through, instead of having a top hinge pin, you use the counterfall to offset the weight of your arms and club as they swing in front of you. Then you can establish a state of perfect rotary equilibrium. Now, you sell a, a, a special putter called a brick on a stick. Is there something unique about that club head that makes it more? The putter, uh, like gone through about oh four or five different putters that I've developed and put into production, but all my putters are designed to work on the arc. Most putters, sometime around 70, 80 years ago, they started making putters more upright, and people quit using them on the arc. That's the way people used to putt. When you look at a Calamity Jane putter or the old uh, Wilson 8802s like Crenshaw putted with, those putters were all designed to work on the arc. Nowadays, putters are made more upright and designed to go up and down the flight line. And the physics of putting up and down the flight line are not nearly as good as they are putting on the arc. Most of them look like plumbing tools these days, I have to tell you. Absolutely do. Uh, now, you mentioned Crenshaw before. Did you know Harvey Pinnock? I did know Harvey Pinnock. I only met him uh, once or twice, and that was years and years ago. 
I've taken I've taken a lot of your time, David. I, I just have a few more questions. Your your son uh, works with you at the school. Do you have other children? I and mean, first of all, can you? How did that come about? Did he have his own love of the game, or did that something that you instilled in him? He kind of followed me into the family business, that, or I kind of drug him into it. But he he started helping us with the schools when he was about eleven years old. I didn't start him really early because I didn't want to burn him out on the game. But he has a, if you look at some of his videos online, and I'm, I'm sure he's probably given you access to the Gravity Golf Challenge, which is our, which is a new book that he and I did together. It's a kind of a video combination video book that has about fifty something lessons in it, and it's it. He demos all the drills in that book. I talk about the science, and he demos the drills. And he has a perfectly gorgeous golf swing. You can see his golf swing and how fluid and dynamic, uh, dynamically it moves. But he's a super teacher in his own right. He's really, he's really very good. Did he play competitively at all? About the time he started to uh, think about playing. It was like about 2008 when the crash hit, and uh, he didn't have a sponsor to go out and play. So he never really got the opportunity to go out and compete. And he is—he uh, does all of our website uh, development and our online stuff. He's been working very, very hard on this new program uh, for the, the Gravity Golf Challenge is what we call it. He books our golf schools. He has. Uh, He's into the modern tech world, which is kind of out of my bailiwick. But he uh, can you give our listeners uh, how, where do they go to? Uh, is there a uh, an address or a website that you want to plug to where they can get this information? It's uh, gravitygolf.com. It shows you all of our different programs. We have an in, uh, instructor development program that he's working on currently. We have full swing and short game schools available. And uh, we have our putters. We have all of our, everything we do as far as gravity golf is, is concerned is online there. And you can, anybody can look at it. We've got a great website. But you also have a school where actually you can attend and get. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people can, people can learn the gravity swing through through my book or our or our things that we're doing, all that are on uh, online, but uh, we can, you know, someone attends a school, we can really help shortcut their learning process big time. Because the the reason golf is see, golf is complicated because people can't look at someone and distinguish between the art and the science. That's why golf's been in a state of mystery for 500 plus years. They watch an individual like Sam Snead, for example, and here's a the, the question that always arises: Is this guy a great player because he has ideal technique both from a physics and physiological standpoint, or is he a great athlete who can compensate technically inferior technique? Yeah, you follow. See, people have never been able to fully distinguish between the art and the science in golf. That's why it's stayed in such a state of mystery for half a millennium. 
I, have, I don't want to let you go till I ask you this one question because I've always been fascinated by Mo, Mo Norman, single playing golf swing. Do you have a point of view on what he did? Mo was an absolute pure gravity player. I had a I had a young Canadian pro come see me in California, and he had he had he came to one of my schools. He had been to see Mo Norman. He said I intended to stay for half a day, and I wound up staying for six months. He said the only thing that Mo ever told me in all that time was that when he came down with a golf club, he never felt one muscle in his body tighten. It would literally hit thousands of balls, like within a, an area of like 15 feet. It was pretty amazing. It was amazing. Not only that, you know, most people, if they're using muscle in the golf swing, if they hit as many golf balls as Mo Norman uh, hit in a day, he would go out and hit easily 800 golf balls in a day, and it didn't tire him at all. People people come to our schools, they can go out and hit three, 400 golf balls in a day and feel like they could keep going at the end of the day because they're not flexing their muscles coming down. If you go out there and hit 400 golf balls and go at it like Arnold Palmer, you're going to be ready to, for it to be care-flighted to the hospital. Right, right. So here's my last question, David. If, if you had one piece of advice to give the average golfer on, on a swing, what would that be? I would tell them that the most important thing they can do is to understand how to properly apply power. You know, I can tell you that for a thousand days or more in my lifetime, when I was trying to develop as a touring professional, I would go to the practice tee every bloody day and dump my golf balls on the ground and just stand there and stare at them for two or three minutes and go, well, what the hell am I going to try today? Every day it was something different. Most players, I watch young professional players, wannabe pros go out there and they stand there every day practicing the same bloody thing, thinking that if they stand there and do it long enough, that they're going to be great. And it it really distresses me. It breaks my heart to see someone standing there trying to stick a square peg in a round hole and think that it's going to happen. So it's golf is a game where if you really want to become great, you need to not be in conflict with Mother Nature's laws. If you send energy back into your body when you swing a golf club, the plane is going to change. That's not a David Lee opinion. That's a physics law. The third law says it will happen. So you have to learn how to apply power in a manner that maintains perfect path integrity so that you can find the middle of the club face every time you swing. That requires proper power application to be able to do that. That's what I've spent my entire life trying to do is demonstrate to people that that it's not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice. I didn't originate that comment, but that is absolutely true. And, it, and you will see, if you learn how to practice correctly, you will be able to play golf comfortably. I mean, I have players in that I teach that are in their 80s that are still plus handicapped players. It's because they their golf swings never get old. They start to lose their 
range of motion as their body stiffen up and things like that, but they can still, I mean, you watch Jack Nicklaus swing the golf club today and he looks like he can barely move, but he can still, he can still move the ball out there. Well, David, I have to tell you, I rarely have interviews go this long, but it, it seems like we've only been talking for a few minutes because this has been so interesting. And, um, and, and I know our listeners will, will find what you've uh, said to be very helpful and, and inspirational. Well, I hope so. I've, I've been studying this stuff so long. I could, uh, we just scratched the surface. I could talk about this with you for about a day and a half. I encourage our listeners to, to check out your site and check out uh, what you've written, both the, both the, the stuff you wrote a while back and plus the new, what did you call it, the, the, the challenge? Golf challenge. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check that out as soon as we get off. You know, since we're in the middle of this, uh, of this really strange time with this COVID-19 and everybody's staying home, Danny has got some great programs where he can uh, instruction programs where he can actually teach people online. So they should check that out. And you, you'd be amazed at how much we can help people just by having them send us a little video clip and see where they're leaking energy or internalizing their own strength. There's a lot of things that you can do to really improve your golf game, even when you're stuck inside, both from, you know, not only in the full swing, but in your short, especially in your short game. Good idea. And I, I'm actually going to check that out. Um, there's a lot of things leaking in my swing, I'll tell you. <laughs> so listen, thank you. I really appreciate your time and, and, and all of the information that you've given us. And uh, I wish you well. Hopefully we all get through this COVID thing successfully. And uh, where's your home? Uh, I'm in New Jersey. I'm in uh, northern New Jersey. You're practically isolated at home now yourself, are you not? Well, I'm pretty much a hermit anyway, but (laughs) hopefully we'll all get out to play once this thing is over. Well, come down to South Carolina and see me. We'll have some fun. I'd love to do that. I have a a daughter who lives in Charleston, and uh, that's not too far from you. Maybe uh, we'll take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed our visit. and We're going to do that. Thanks, David. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to GolfYeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com. 